All right, thank you for listening to this podcast. This episode of Literally is sponsored by Lexicon and Line. Case, tell us a little something about Lexicon and Line. Uh, Lexicon and Line it does three things. They, they are communications consultants. They teach professional business writing and speaking courses, and they are research and data evaluation experts. And you can find everything about Lexicon Online at lexicononline.com. Please give them a visit. And thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast, Lexicon and Line. Confronting authors with real questions about the writing process, the difficult and disheartening publishing industry, and why anyone would choose to torture themselves in the world of writing, this is the Literally Podcast with your host, writer, runner, and the literary voice of Ogden, Utah, Case Johnston. Exposing literature, the authors, the business, the process, the Literally Podcast. All right, so I'm going to be reading from Finding Abby, and I'm going to read a section later on in the book. It's called Abby Country. And just to set you up, what's going on is my best friend House and I are heading out into the desert to begin the search for Edward Abbey's hidden desert grave. This takes place October 16th, and we're somewhere out in the desert. It starts with a quote from the uh, Colorado-based writer David Peterson, a secret too much revealed loses all its magic. In late evening, House and I stumble, exhausted, back to the Jeep. Even after a long day of failure in our search for Abby's grave, we smile because we have traveled far within this great desert in search of something larger than a grave. As we swallow huge gulps of water blanketed by the hot night air, we talk about our plan for tomorrow, our final day of searching. Since today, we scoured the two areas where we hoped Abby's grave would be. We shrug our shoulders as we talk about where next to search. We don't have a clue. Finally, House and I decide on a whim to search a wild card spot tomorrow, a spot neither of us had ever anticipated traveling to, a spot we had never envisioned as we thought about our search for Abby's grave. But we have nothing left. We were wrong in our planning. Our clues have failed us. We're out of options of running out of time. House needs to fly to Colorado in 15 hours. So on the edge of the dark of night, we climb into the Jeep. And after a quiet day with only a few birds and a subtle breeze as company, we are startled by the snarl of the engine. I put the Jeep in gear and drive. We cover a distance. Is it a single mile or a thousand miles from last night's camp? Distances are so tricky in the desert. We park on a dirt road. When I shut off the Jeep's engine, we are parked deep inside Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument where Abby has said he wanted to be buried. We're still in the Sonoran Desert, so the clues I've compiled still make sense. Before the engine is cool, we realize that it must be Saguaro National Park near Abby's Tucson home where he's buried. That's actually the only thing that makes sense. So we race northward and arrive just as the sky goes crazy with sunrise. And just as we're about to begin our Saguaro search, one of us maybe house decodes a new clue and discover that Abby's even closer to Tucson, somewhere he could have been carried immediately after his death. So we race off to Ina Road where we head for a spot where Abby first tried to die. Yes, this, this must be it. And everything about being buried in the Cabeza Prieta was just Abby's friends monkey wrenching one more time. But as soon as we drive to Ina Road, we realize that our clues are wrong, so we weave our way up and over Mount Lemon to Oracle. 
No, 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 actually to Wolf Hole. Abby never lived in either of those spots, though he claimed to in his books, but that's where he must be buried. He finally makes those places home. Or in the dead of night, we realize that the Tucson region is all wrong. So we race past a Phoenix night that glows like a supernova. Tonight, brilliant, but soon about to fade away to nothing. We drive past Flagstaff before dawn and fall asleep as the sun breaks over the gaping yawn of the Grand Canyon. And this is where we find Abby's grave right here because Abby once in 1949 almost died in a side canyon of Havasu Canyon trapped on a remote ledge without rope. What better place to call your final home than where you once almost lost your life? Or maybe we leave the Cabeza Priate and drive all night with a hammer down, sneaking into Arches National Park at dawn on Willow Flats Road. We park outside the workstation, realizing Amy, the SCA volunteer from Arches, was right about Abby being buried beneath that pile of gravel where his trailer once sat. Or he's buried, we realize, at Dead Horse Point overlooking the Colorado River. Or he's buried in LaSalle's where the sun lingers longest. Took a nook of it. So we race there and start towards a peak, realizing that we'll find the grave just as the sun starts to settle upon the peak. But after all the miles of driving, we come to see that after all these locations are ghost chases leading us nowhere. So we park at the top of Comb Ridge, and during the midnight hour, we hike past ancestral Pueblo and ruins, only to realize we're in the wrong canyon, and we need to drop into the frigid waters of the black hole of White Canyon near that damned Lake Fowl, where we search the banks of every river, river we can name the Rio Grande, the Green, the San Juan, the Colorado, the Dolores. And on our way to the San Juan River, we decide to park on the edge of Cedar Mesa and hike into Grand Gulch. Tomorrow, we'll search Collins Canyon. We'll find either Everett Roos's or Abby's grave down there. Either will be the discovery of a lifetime. But no, we realize again, all of these places are wrong. Abby's grave is in the maze. How could we not have realized? Now we just need to find a way in and a way back out. Or the grave is right under our noses. Wherever we drive to, wherever we end up, we wake the next morning as deep in Abbey Country as one can get. David Peterson spoke of this idea of Abbey Country during our interview in Durango. He said every place that Ed ever, ever, Ed ever was, that he ever wrote about, the whole Moab area, southeastern Utah, Cedar Mesa, the Sonoran Desert. Since people didn't know where Ed was buried, his spirit was there. Peterson went on, I can't go to any of those places today, especially the canyon country, without feeling Ed's spirit. He's the closest thing to a real ghost I've ever known. Peterson continued, but Ed is buried in Abbey country. Ed, Ed is buried in the kind of place that he loved, that he spent his life in, that he wrote about, that you may know, that you may love. That's where Ed's buried. He's buried in the American Southwest in Abbey country. And as House and I step out of the Jeep, we realize that Dave is right. Abbey's ghost, his spirit, his presence is everywhere in the West. I felt Abby's ghostly presence in Arches National Park as I drove in long lines of industrial tourists. I felt it when I gazed upon the American-Mexican border and saw where economic refugees trickled across the dividing line. I felt Abby's presence in the slot canyons and needles, and even in the cities that he called home. It's as if his words, his ideas have settled down upon all the lands of the American West. And since Abby and I can feel his presence almost everywhere, we choose a spot because it's deepest in Abbey country. We choose a spot because it's centered within the myth of the American West. We choose a spot where we feel the presence of Abbey like a ghost. The spot we choose is chosen almost at random because just about anywhere out here is infused with Abbey's spirit. Almost anywhere could be the perfect home for Abbey's grave. All the American West is his resting spot.
This is Case Johnston. This is the Literally Podcast. We're broadcasting from my home in Ogden, Utah. Today, our guest is Sean Prentice, the author of Finding Abby and many other things. Uh, Sean Prentice is the award-winning author of Finding Abby, A Search for Edward Abbey and His Hidden Desert Grave, a memoir about Edward Abbey and the search for home. Finding Abby won the 2015 National Outdoor Book Award for History Biography, the Utah Book Award for Nonfiction, and the New Mexico-Arizona Book Award for Biography. It was also a Vermont Book Award and Colorado Book Award finalist. Prentice is the the series editor for the Bloomsbury Publishing Writers Guide series. This textbook line focuses on creative writing, two books, environmental and and nature writing, a craft guide, an anthology, and advanced creative nonfiction forthcoming from in 2022 are written by Prentice. Prentice is is also the co-editor of The Far Edges of the Fourth Genre, uh, Explorations in Creative Nonfiction, a creative nonfiction craft anthology, and the co-editor of the forthcoming book, The Science of Story, The Brain Behind Creative Nonfiction forthcoming in 2019 from Bloomsbury. He's also the author of the poetry manuscript Crosscut, a a trail-building memoir and poems coming in 2020 uh, from the University of New Mexico Press. He and his family live on a small lake in northern Vermont, and he serves as an associate professor at Norwich University and is a faculty member in the MFA Writing and Publishing Program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. Um, Sean uh, has done a lot when it comes to Utah. Right. I mean, of course, with with this book, with Finding Abby, obviously, um, it, it, it a lot of it is rooted in Utah, uh, where where uh, Abby, for those of you who don't know, who listen to this podcast, who are not familiar with Abby, if you're from Utah, I shame you. Um, if you are not from Utah, you may not know so much about him. Uh, but Abby has placed himself, obviously, at the center of the canon of Western writing. Um and he is he is kind of a cornerstone of Utah to Utah literature as well. Um, and within Sean's reading, he uh, he talks about this idea of crossing the desert. And one of my initial questions was, uh, and he crazily enough picked a picked a picked an e- excerpt that led into, um, what does it mean to traverse the desert? You know, this idea mm-hmm. of going into where so many people don't think that there is life and i mean looking at abby's abby's expert water 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 you and you know this one where he says there's always enough water um in mm-hmm. the desert to survive it there's just not enough water for people to build and develop in that desert and and it makes yeah. me think about abby in that way with the with the piece that you with you with you selected um and the question is within traversing the desert when did you come to that kind of realization that it doesn't matter if we find the grave because Abby's grave is truly everywhere. Was it that day or was it throughout the journey? It was throughout the journey. It was actually much earlier in the process. I remember when my friend gave me the book idea. So I did not come up with this idea on my own. My friend, Steve Coughlin, a wonderful poet from Nebraska, said, uh, you should write a book about uh, finding Abby's grave. And pretty soon thereafter, I thought that if it matters if I find the grave or not, then I'm not doing my job as a writer. And what really matters is, is the search for it. And whatever I find at the end should not determine success or failure of the book. Mm-hmm. And that was a, you know, a really nice thing to realize because all of a sudden then I could enjoy the process and not worry about if I found the grave. And a lot of the people that uh, you know, I'm associated with, including House in the book, my best friend and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, they didn't want me to find the grave. They wanted it to remain a mystery. Mm-hmm. And I won't let you know if I found the grave or not, but I always liked that idea of 
you know, people actively hoping that I don't find it as I went searching for it. But yeah, so from the very beginning, I realized that if it's about the grave, then then there's a problem with my writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it ends the exploration, right? I mean, or the purpose of it. Yeah, and it's not about a grave. It's mm-hmm. about figuring out what to do with my life. It's a figuring out what I can learn from Abby. It's figuring out where I should live and what I should do for work. And none of that has to do with finding a grave. Finding a grave is just the impetus. And I mean, think about just about every single book we've ever read. You know, it's, we say the cliche, it's not the destination, it's the journey, because it's the truth. Right. And um, for those who haven't read it, and you should read it, um, where does this all begin? Because it begins when you take a, a tenure track job, and yeah. you feel as if you're not quite ready to be there. Yeah, you know, I was born in Pennsylvania, just like Abby, and then I spent almost 20 years out west. Most of it, well, I, I've worked in almost every western state and lived in a whole bunch of them, but Colorado and Idaho are probably my two longest. And then I moved to a city far away from all the mountains, and I realized really quickly that I just struggled in cities, and I really struggled not seeing mountains. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had this wonderful job at a wonderful school. I had a beautiful house and I felt completely without home and without place. And so that's where it all began with me trying to figure out, you know, you, you have a tenure track job. It's so hard to get uh, and it's so hard to get a second one. Mm-hmm. And I was just worried, especially back then, I didn't have a book out. So if I gave up this job, I would probably give up my academic career. So then I'd have to find some new career at 38 years old. And I figured I'd become a carpenter. Mm -hmm. Not that I was very talented in that, but I figured, well, maybe I can learn. And uh, so I figured, well, before I just quit my job, let me try to figure out what I should do first. And then that's when I pieced together that with the idea my friend Steve gave me of searching for Abby's grave. And I said, oh yeah, I should go searching for Abby's grave. One, as a way to get out of the city. Mm -hmm. But then two, Abby lived all across the country and often would leave the desert and would fail spectacularly. And then he'd quit whatever he was doing, marriages or, yeah. or teaching jobs and go racing back to what he felt like was his home. And I thought, well, let me ask Abby, but he died you know, many years before that in 89. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll read his work and I'll follow in his path and see what I can learn from his life and his writings. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it feels, um, the journey itself, like you discussed with, with, with the writing, um, is really there's two narratives here, right? I mean, you're looking with this book, you're looking at this journey for yourself of getting away from a place that you thought that you always wanted to be with the tenure track job and with this good school, uh, defining where you want to be, but at the same time, the dual narrative of going and and actively uh, pursuing a a piece of dirt, basically, which is a really interesting way to look at it. And um, when you, when you were writing this with, with the, with the dual narrative, did you know that it was going to take this shape initially or did you think it might do might come across in a different way or was it something you were dealing with while you were writing it? You know, I think the one big surprise about its form is how much of a biography it ended up being. Right. And, you know, if you were to ask me in grad school if I'd ever write anything closely resembling a biography, I would have laughed. I mean, that's the furthest skill set I have. And if you would have ever, ever asked me if I'd be diving into special collections libraries and, and interviewing people and, and doing all of this more traditional academic style research, and, and my reading list for this was probably 60 to 90 books tall. Yeah. And 
you know, so that was the biggest su surprise. I, I knew I could put together some sort of travelogue. I knew I could do the personal essay, at least to, to my level, but I never had any idea that so much of the biography would get in there. But I was just learning that as I was reading about Abby and from Abby that we started having a conversation and, and he would pose an idea and then I would think about it for a while and then I'd throw a question out there and somewhere in my reading I'd find an answer from Abby. Mm -hmm. And and I just really wanted that to get in the book as much as possible because, you know, if I'm searching for his grave, there's a reason for it. And it was because I felt like I could learn about my place in this world from one of my elders and one of, you know, one of the people that taught me more about writing than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, Abby's interesting in that way, in the sense that he, for those who love him, they love him. Mm -hmm. For those who don't, they don't. Um, mm -hmm. When you started this, did your views change of him as a writer and as a person when you began to when you finished? I mean, was after doing all the reading and then going mm -hmm. out and doing the journey, did your your impression of him as a writer and as yourself as a writer, as a person change throughout that until the end? I mean, well, one, one, once you finished up. Yeah, and I'll, if you don't mind, I'm going to stretch all the way back to when I first read Abby. That was 1994. And House, you know, he gave me Desert Solitaire. And then quickly I started tearing through as many Abbey books as I could mm -hmm. get my hands on. And back then, especially, I was drawn to this hyper-masculine voice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, deep bouts of solitude in the desert, uh, emotional highs and lows, romances, all of that. And I think back then I wasn't very smart about how I read Abby. And I read him as a young man loving a man's voice in the desert. Sure. And then I went to grad school and that taught me a whole lot. And I got older and that taught me a whole lot. And then I did all this research and that taught me a whole lot. And, you know, I think for a long time, I, I really struggled with, you know, there are spots where, you know, I don't know if I, I normally say where it sounds like he's misogynistic or it sounds like he's racist or it sounds like he's xenophobic, mm -hmm. but I don't know if the sounds like is, is fair. You know, like some of those statements just are racist statements. Yeah. And I don't know, I never met Abby, so I don't know if those statements are a true testament to who Abby was, or if they're a testament to the voice he was trying to have in his writing. And he talked a lot about, and so did his friends, about how there's two voices. There's Abby, the writer, Mm -hmm. And you would imagine if he came into to this interview, he would take it over and he'd be loud and obnoxious and he'd be having a, a beer, but it might be his third or his fourth or his fifth. But then his friends always talked about when he was in a room, he was one of the quietest people in the room. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if those statements were Abby or if those were Abby's persona on the page. And then as I talked to his friends more and as I thought more about it, what I think about is all the silly things I've said. And if you were to deep dive into my emails or, or some of my conversations when I was younger or more inebriated, mm -hmm. what would you dig up? And you dig up some some things that don't shine on me as nicely as I'd like. Yeah. And does that make me a bad person? I'll let you, you could decide that. But I think what I settled on is that when I talked to Abby's friends, 
I've never met people 20, almost 25 years removed from their friend's death who without prompting were just so willing to defend him and so full of love for him. Mm -hmm. And these are some of the smartest people I've ever run into. Yeah. And so I think what I realized is he's a human and he's an artist and he's a, a marketer in the sense that he's trying to sell a voice and an idea. And he's not perfect, but he's human. And, and I love that about him. He's willing to take risks and I don't agree with all of its risks, but I agree with his ideas that like you were saying earlier, the West is overdeveloped. America is overdeveloped. Climate change is an issue. I think Abby would have definitely agreed with that. And he would have decided, I believe, that it came out of overpopulation uh, across the globe and across America and that we need to reduce our population, to reduce our consumption uh, and live more gently upon the West and, and upon places like Vermont, where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you took that with you? I mean, for yourself in this, I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, Hey, I understand that he has the, he has the writer persona and the personal persona. Yeah. Um, is there a different Sean with the, the writer persona from, from the book and from, uh, from you sitting here talking to us now or removed when you're by the lake in Vermont? Well, uh, there definitely is now because now I'm happily married with a two-year-old yeah. daughter right. in the place that I call home and I hope to die in this home. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing the book, all of those things were missing. So I've changed that way. But what I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a teacher like you are, and I always push my students to take risks. And I say, you know, emotionally put yourself out there on a page. And, uh, and I demand that they are brave. And then I always think of, of what a hypocrite I am because – there's just a lot of things I refuse to write about on the page because I'm just not willing to put my family in, in harm's way at all. So, you know, if, if my wife and I have a discussion that might make a good essay, it's, it's not going to become an essay. Yeah. My life for me is more important than my writing and not many things are. So, you know, Abby was willing to put his writing first and I, and I'm just amazed at that, and I honor that, and I tell my students to do that, and I just don't. And I, I want to say I wish I did, but uh, you know, my family is more important than that. Yeah, no, I understand completely. I used to, you know, yeah. my first few essays that were published, I wish I could take back a lot of times because they're too. And now I, uh, just along the same line, and just a, if, I, if there's anything with my wife, it's like I'm clearing it through her. Like it's like, well, how did yeah. you see it? Did we see it the same way? Are we on yeah. the same page? This essay is basically coming from us. It's going to be our voice looking yep. on the page, and it's because it's you're right. It's it's you can hurt people, you know, and that's the last thing in the world when you're close to people that you want to do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, thinking about Abby still with the, this these dual personas, where do you think he would belong today? Like from all your research, you know, where do you think he would belong? Because it's different, right? I mean, it's different than the '60s um, in 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 arches mm -hmm. and and like you said, industrial tourism is I think was your was your words and uh, and it's true. You go into arches and it's a line of cars, and then people mm -hmm. that's that's the most frustrating park for me, you know, because Zion. Luckily, yeah. they now have the they have the 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 tram that you can go in, and they yeah. limit the amount of people. Um, where would where do you think Abby would belong today? Like if you were writing him. So Abby is an anarchist and, you know, 
I think his big idea on that was that a true anarchist is a member of a very small localized community. So it's not that they don't believe in rules, it's that they believe in the rules of a landscape and of a culture based out of that landscape. So, you know, he is he's very much anti-large government, so he would have been a libertarian. Mm-hmm. And now it just depends on where. He was anti-immigration. He believed in that there should be a border wall. Yeah. And, you know, that fits in perfectly with Trump, but... Uh, I'm 99% sure that Abby would have despised Trump Mm -hmm. and they would have agreed on stopping immigration, but they would have agreed on that premise for very, very different reasons. Uh, You know, Trump has his ideas. Abby's was all about population control. Mm -hmm. It was about keeping and uh, keeping the land as protected as possible from, you know, the the industrialized tourism and uh, just the industrialized nation. So where would he fit? Uh, he would not be a Republican. He would not be a, a Democrat, but he would be, you know, maybe a, a green libertarian. And, you know, he'd be calling for more wilderness still. He'd be calling for uh, uh, control of immigration and maybe not in the most politically correct ways. Uh, but he would also be uh, just, you know, taking lots and lots of shots at the Trump's administration's uh, abuse of the land and the air and climate. Mm -hmm. And he would be uh, firmly entrenched opposed to those ideas while saying that we need to look at each community separately. And the desert Southwest should be developed differently than Vermont. It's just, they're two different places and they should have two different governments. Hmm. That's really interesting to hear. Um, Especially like where the current administration would line up with him, but of course for completely different reasons, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and he would, of course, with the stuff with what's happening in the South in Southern Utah here with, uh, with our, with our national monuments and stuff, I'm guessing Abby would be on the front lines uh, yeah. to protect them. Um, yeah. But for, you know, for a different reason than maybe I would. Right. I mean, well, and I'm thinking about, uh, uh, Bundy out in Nevada, I believe it was, you know, with the uh, Sagebrush Rebellion, which is a, a localized group of, of men and women taking back land for their community. And there's a, a recent UPenn master's student named Eric Dells, who did a wonderful project on Abby. And he brings this up and he talks about this idea that it sure seems like Abby would be on their side, but then Abby hated uh, modern ranchers. Yeah. You know, he called them uh, welfare cattlemen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever you think you pin Abby down, he, he moves it. So is he for the localized community? Well, maybe. It depends on what they stand for. Is he for uh, more federal lands? Maybe it depends on what they're doing with it. If they're turning it into a national park and paving it, probably not. If they're turning it to a, a wilderness area, hey, maybe. So he's a, it's a, he's a moving target. But his big ideas always come down to how do you defend the land from us, the people? Right, right. And it, it, I think a lot of times it comes down. I mean, if he, I think if he were alive today and people tried to use his voice to say something, he'd probably be the first one to say, "Knock it off! You're you're, you're getting me wrong, or I'm going to, yeah. you know, you're not you're not saying for the reason I am, you know. I mean, yeah, which would be really interesting because it's a different time. I mean, it's a different time, and but he, he, he I mean, he, he predicted it, don't you think, in a lot of ways, especially like arches and so on and so forth, all down south. Yeah, I mean, industrialized tourism, 
go to any national park. I was just reading stats. I wish I could remember them. I'm terrible with remembering numbers. But, I mean, parks are just buckling under the weight of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same with uh, state parks, same with uh, wilderness areas. You know, we're, we're just killing the land to death. But then, you know, I think about Vermont in the 1800s when we were 90 or 85 uh, percent deforested. You know, the Green Mountain State had no green left. Huh. And, you know, if you watch the, the path of humanity moving across America, it's, the, you know, that same tale. And, uh, you know, you go back to Frederick Jackson Turner and the frontier is closed and we're just filling up every single spot. And Abby saw that coming and uh, and we see it coming. My brother was calling me right at the right <laughs> moment. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. It's it's really it's really interesting. Um, first off, I think somebody needs to be and this should be you. Needs to do a <laughs> needs to do a book on Abby's wives, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, he's had four or was it five? He's had five. Five wives. I mean, I think, and then he always went that's back. A in Utah, by the way. That is that's, that's it is Utah. Utah. It's yeah. just timing, right? Um, yep. Um, but he went back to his. He went back to one of his wives at the very end, didn't he? I mean, in the, he left her and then ended up going back to her right before death, didn't he? Something like that. No, so. Let's see. He, I'm looking at my own book. So he married Jean in 1950 and divorced her in 52. And they married Rita in 52. And he was already dating her before they got married. So you can see what was happening there. Divorced her in 65. He had two kids with her. Married Judy in 65. She died in 1970. But he had already left her more or less before she died. And then he kind of came back and at least spent time with her. And then he married Renee in 73 and got divorced from her in 82. And that was down in Tucson. And then he met uh, in Salt Lake, Clark, and that was in 82. So, you know, there's seemingly that overlap there. And then he died on her in 89. But, you know, from everything I know, he was with Clark those last seven years. You know, I, I think they had highs and lows. But I don't know of him ever leaving her for a, a previous, previous wife. One, yeah. But I, I got a chance to meet Clark. And I'll tell you a quick story here just because uh, it's a fun one. I was reading at uh, Back and Beyond Bookstores in Utah, which is one of my favorite bookstores in the country. And I remember going into that bookstore in the early to mid-90s and just seeing their Abbey collection and their, their Bowdoin collection, their Terry Tempest Williams collection, and just buying books and and they allowed me to give a reading there, and they almost didn't. I asked if I could read there, and Andy, the owner, said no. And and I understood why, and it was because he thought I was writing a different book than I did. So uh-huh. I said, or I wrote him a, a long email. I said, Andy, I fully respect your your right to say no to me, and if after this email you still want to say no, I'll still consider you one of my favorite bookstores, and I'll be sad, but I get it. You get to make that decision, and if you don't think I'm treating Abby fairly – then, then I've written the wrong book. And I sent him an email about what the book was about, how it's about the journey. It's not about the grave, right. how it's about a, a biography of Abby, all of that stuff. And he said, well, come on out. So I went out there to give a reading and my wife, Sarah came with me and we did a tour of the Southwest and a bunch of readings. And I think that was our last one. And it was the one I was probably most excited and most nervous about. Mm-hmm. And I was most nervous about it. Cause that's maybe the epicenter of Abby country. Right. And I was really worried about who might show up. 
And one of the people I was worried about was Clark. And I was worried because there's been enough people who were worried about what this book was going to be about. Yeah. And I, I can tell you those stories as well. But I didn't know how she would take it. And I, I get to the bookstore and I'm talking to Andy. He's wonderful. I'm loving it. There's a nice little crowd and I'm about to go on. And, and Andy calls me over behind a, a rack of books and he says, hey, Sean, I want you to meet someone. And I see it's a woman and I just you know immediately break out into a sweat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you know, he says, uh, Andy says, hey, this is Clark. Clark, this is Sean. And we have like a two minute conversation and it's wonderful. But then I have to go read. And uh, she sits down in the back next to my wife and they just laugh through the entire reading and just talk to each other and mostly ignore me and my reading. But I was so happy to have gotten a chance to meet her. Happy that my wife and her hit it off. And I can't say I see her tons, but anytime I do, she is just kind and gracious and wonderful. And, you know, I think this goes back to the earlier question about who Abby was and, and how he could have said some of those things. And again, I don't know, but I know the people that he surrounded himself with were just people with huge hearts. Mm -hmm. And Clark is like that. And, you know, if she found, you know, something in him strong enough to love, then, you know, you know, he's a great man on a lot of levels because she was a great, great woman from everything. You know, I got to see when I hung out with her and I hope to hang out with her anytime I go out West. Yeah, that had to, that probably had to feel like a great stamp of approval or almost just a relief, right? When after she was there and listened to you read and, and was happy with it. And, you know, I mean, she was probably more happy talking to your wife than listening to you read, as you said, but that, that in itself probably had to feel pretty good that day. You know, I mean, as you know, you, books are, you know, you run into people that your books affect and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's scary. So that had to feel pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it felt really good. And, you know, you get book reviews for your book, for my book, and some people love it and some people hate it. And there's a lot of critics out there, and I, and I get that. Uh, and I always talk to my students. I say, you know, if you're going to do a book review, choose a book you love. Yeah. There's enough people that beat up books. And, you know, we don't need, at least my opinion is, unless a book really is flawed philosophically or mm -hmm. ethically, you know, if you don't love it, just toss it to the side. It's, you're not the reader for it. Right. But, you know, you know, my book had highs and lows. And the biggest joys for me were when, you know, Clark continued to talk to me after the reading. Yeah. Or when uh, Jack Loeffler, Abby's best friend, introduced me in Santa Fe. Or when, uh, here's another uh, reading story. I was reading out in uh, Saguaro National Park. And I'm in right outside, well, I'm in the park, but outside of the main building. And I read this one section about Doug Peacock and in it, Doug threatens my life. And I'm about to get to that section. And I see this guy coming in and I'm reading and looking up and reading and looking up. And every time I look up, I think that, yes, he looks a little bit more like Doug Peacock. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to decide if, if I can read this section about him, you know, more or less threatening to kill me out in the desert while he's here. And then I realize, wait, this is Doug Peacock. He'll love it if I read this about him, at yeah. least I assume. So I read it and it is Peacock and he comes up and we hang out afterwards and we go back to my friend Jeremy's house out in the desert and we all have drinks. And, you know, I just think that if Peacock and Loeffler and Clark think I caught some honest version of Abby, and I don't always treat Abby as 
the best writer in America or right. the, the best thinker in America, America I talk about his flaws. Like if they feel like I treated him fairly yeah. and they're willing to share a beer or a conversation, then I've done what I set out to do. Yeah. That's a success. Yeah. That yeah. is, yeah, that's huge. That, that's huge. Um, have you, do you think since writing this book, I mean, and that's how it is with memoir. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you wrap it up nice and pretty, uh, but it's never nice and pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, since finishing it, Going back, do you think you would have, you wished you would have written more, ended earlier or ended later with it, with the autobiography or with the biography as well, or the autobiography or as with the journey itself? I mean, I know with my book, I, I was just glad to have it done. Um, yeah. You know, um, but there, and I felt like, you know, at that time in my life, there was a resolution. Since then, of course, that resolution's blown up and there, that doesn't, but on the page, do you feel like that resolution is where you want it to be? Yeah, I think the book does what I want the book to do, and and I'm happy with that. The one thing I wish I could have done was to get more voices in. My favorite part of writing the book, and it, this is a shocker to me, was was talking to Abby's friends and using those interviews. And I had this dream of writing, I'll call it writing another book, but it'd really be listening another book, where I just go and interview all of Abby's friends and as many of his wives or lovers uh, or fr- uh, or you know family members as I can, and just letting them have the final say on Abby, and just putting together a collection of those interviews because that was where I learned the most was just yeah. talking to these men and women and, and learning from them. So that's that was my one regret is that I didn't have more time and more money to just and 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 the access right now I have a lot of access into Abby's community back then. You know, if you type my name into Google, I don't know what you would have found. Uh, it would have been almost nothing. So, mm-hmm. you know, why should Jack Loeffler give me an interview? Why should Doug Peacock waste his time on me? So I was so lucky to get anything I could. But, you know, if I was doing it today, I would have the ability, I think, to reach out to a lot more of his friends and family. Yeah. And, uh, and I would love just an addendum to the book where it's just hear all the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Just like just raw. It's completely yeah. raw, just like a transcript of everything that they said. Yeah. Um, and that actually goes to my next question when it comes to shaping, you know, with this with this book. I mean, because of a lot of it, it deals with the journey. But then, of course, there's a lot of, of, of flashback in life for the biography and so on and so forth. Um, when it comes to the shaping of it, did you have that in mind? Well, you already discussed it briefly before that you didn't think there would be as much about you, as much memoir as you thought there would be, um, or personal memoir as you thought there would be mm-hmm. the, the distance itself. Or not distance itself, but was along with the journey or outside the journey. Um with shaping, and you and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. when our short five days together in Colorado, we talked about nonfiction horribly. I mean, so much that you can't even think about it. And with the shaping, um, and this is for some of the, some of the people because I share this with my students as well. I share my podcast mm-hmm. with my students as well. Um, with the shaping, how do you feel? Because you know, it covers a lot of time and so on. How how would you explain to students the authenticity? authenticity or the honesty of shaping a large a large amount of time into such a short uh, such a small book because into a book yeah it's it's a tricky beast and first off i'll tell your students that they're so lucky to learn from you oh i i tell them every day (laughs) (laughs) all right all right i take it back no i'm just kidding i'm I'm totally kidding oh yeah yeah go sorry (laughs) 
You know, that's... I just got back from nonfiction now, which was down in Phoenix. Great conference. And it always forces me to reflect on truth and ethics in creative nonfiction. And and I'm a hardliner where I believe that we need to, to tell the truth. And as soon as I talk about that hard line, I think about every single way in which I manipulate the truth of the experience. And, you know, my journey to find finding Abby I could talk for days about how I manipulate time, how I compress time, how I get rid of people, how with those interviews, you know, you're talking about a big mess of a sprawling conversation and I could have just used that, but I think that works really well for a conversation. It doesn't work great for a book Mm -hmm. and the reader is asking for a book. They're not asking for the rawness of life. The rawness of life is pretty darn boring and we have got to be artists with that. So, you know, being a hardliner, how do I balance that? And I guess I always try to just think about would the person that I'm representing feel like this is an honest version of them? So David Peterson, Jack Loeffler, Doug Peacock, Ken Slight, you know, as I, I don't change any of their words, I move some of them around, would they feel that's fair? And and I always share my writing with the people I'm writing about, mm-hmm. just like you talked about, because... Yeah. It's more important that Dave Peterson feels like I represented him correctly. Even if, he, you know, I make him sound like not the best guy, which I do. He's, he's smart and he's, he, you know, he didn't say anything that would make him sound anything like that. But, you know, it's not about making someone sound better than they are. It's just making someone sound like their authentic self. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always share it with them so that they can say, yep, this is who I am. This is what I would have said. But then with Doug Peacock, I interviewed him. Uh, at a different time than it is in the book. And it was after I was done with all my searching and there was a pragmatic reason for that. And that was because Peacock would not interview me earlier because he didn't agree with my project until later. So, you know, I could have put it after the search for Abby's grave, but it just doesn't work. And again, you know, is that truthful to the experience? No, but like, I have to think about my readers. They don't mm-hmm. want it at, afterwards because it just doesn't work. Right. So at the very, very beginning of the book, I, I give a little uh, no, note about that. I just say, you know, this one chapter has been changed to just say, hey, I, I did this and here's why I did it for thematic reasons. And I don't think it changes the truth of anything. I don't think getting that, uh, that interview early alters anything. But the big thing is as you you have to compress because life is big. So what you can get rid of is anything that is mundane, anything that is non-novel, anything that's not going to change the central question or the not a meaning that you're after and anything that the other people would not disagree with. And and then you have to get rid of that for the reader. Yeah. So those are the things I think about as I take – you know, something like a five-year process and boil it down into 280 pages is what is vital for this one story, which is a person, me, searching for the idea of home by interrogating Abby. Right. Everything else is secondary and can get rid of. Right. Yeah, and that's the larger truth, right? I mean, finding Sean Prentice within the search for Abby. Um, yeah. And it's a great book. And this is, oh, thanks, Brandon. 
This is Case Johnson. This is a Literally Podcast. We're broadcasting from my home in Ogden, Utah. Today we're talking with uh, Sean Prentice, the author of Finding Abby and many, many other books and essays and poems. Um, Sean today is talking to us uh, about his journey, uh, Finding Abby, but also on his his uh, biography journey, in, in autobiography journey of finding himself as a younger man. And um, wh- I think I have one last question, um, and, and that really is, now you're in Vermont. Um, yeah. you're not in the West and you're not in the cities. Um, where or how is place shaping your writing now? I mean, if it is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making an assumption, but you know, place with me is my writing's all about place. Um, but is Vermont, uh, shaping, shaping what you're doing now? So where I'm sitting talking to you, I'm looking out, I have a double window up in my office and I'm looking out at a lake and then I have another double window to my right and I'm looking out at a mountain and it's not a big mountain like out West. It's a small mountain. It's an old mountain. And I'm hemmed in by all sorts of soft and hardwoods. And even that is a term I wouldn't have used out West. Uh, you know, when mm-hmm. I got here, I was like, what the heck is soft and hardwood? Mm-hmm. And it's merely deciduous and, and coniferous. Mm-hmm. And my writing is completely transformed living here, especially because I'm home here. I didn't expect to find home in Vermont. I moved, well, I shouldn't say I moved here for my wife, but I took an interview here for my wife. And when I landed in Burlington and drove to Norwich University for my interview, I was shocked by how immediately I was drawn to this landscape. And it reminds me of my home landscape, Pennsylvania. And it's a, it's a problem in the sense that, you know, Finding Abby came out as soon as I moved here and I realized as soon as it came out, like, whoa, I was an expert or becoming an expert on a, a Western-based author and a Western landscape. And now everything I'm writing from here on out is going to be about home here in Vermont. Mm-hmm. So every single project I've written since then is about here. And I'm learning a new landscape and, you know, losing that old expertise and trying to build up a new one and it's wonderfully exhausting but i think it's really beautiful because i'm writing about the place the environment that affects me and you know i'm an environmental writer at least that's what i'd call myself and that's about writing about how humans affect place and place affects human and you know i'm digging my roots into this vermont soil and vermont is is transforming me mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just infusing itself in every part. Oh, and I learned recently about there's invasive species, there's native species, and then there's naturalized species. Mm-hmm. And we have trout in our lake and they are not invasive, but they're not native, they're naturalized. Mm-hmm. So they came from Europe, they uh, were stocked here and they fit well into this ecosystem. And I see myself as a naturalized Vermonter. I'm not from here, but if I do it right, then I live within this culture and I live within this landscape right. and I become a part of it. And all my writing naturally will spring out of that. Mm-hmm. And it's been a lot of fun. What's your big project? Are you have, do you have a big project besides the, uh, with, with, we, we have the, the textbooks that are coming out. What's the, yeah. what's on the more, on the more creative side that you're doing? Well, the next book I have coming out is called Crosscut, a uh, trail building memoir and poems. And that's right. all about right. the Pacific Northwest. But then writing about Vermont, I'm I'm working on a memoir about learning how to bow hunt. So uh, my wife's aunt and uncle, my aunt's downstairs right now hanging out with my daughter. 
uh, my wife's uncle is teaching me to bow hunt. So it's all about place and learning place through bow hunting. And then the next one is called Solstice. And this is a collection of poems that blend science and poetry. So every poem takes on some little natural history event. And it all takes place here on my lake. So what I'm seeing is that Finding Abbey was about finding my spot, which is Vermont and Turtle Cove. And then Hunting for a Home, if it ever gets published, will be about learning the Vermont landscape. And then Solstice will be about learning this exact landscape, specifically the, the plants and animals and uh, scientific phenomena that occur right here. So I get smaller and smaller and smaller until uh, I'll be writing about, you know, a tiny little acre and the yeah. reader will get really bored. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. And, um, so those are both coming out. That's two ones coming out in 2020 crosscut, right? Yeah. Um, and then, um, when was the other one coming out? Well, I have to finish those. No, you so have to finish the, they, the bow hunting yeah. one, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They don't have publishers yet, yeah. but, um, about halfway through that. Okay. Oh, well, I'm, I'm excited. And I, I, <laughs> Uh, I hope that uh, I hope I get to see you this summer, and I'm glad we got to talk. I mean, we had to we have to b- bump this butt back a couple times because you and I we would we would we would schedule something, and realize oh shit, we got something on our schedule that day. And so, yeah. but I'm glad we we got to talk. And um, I have a hypothetical. Oh yeah, Brand's got the last question of the day. It's always better than anything I have. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> all right, uh, hypothetical. Uh, all right, so of course it's the old uh, you finally get to meet Abby question. Uh, first of all, what beer would you sit down with Abby with? What, what would you be drinking and how would you lead off that uh, interview? Oh, those are great questions. I told you, I told you, he, she, you know, yeah. she always shows me up. <laughs> <laughs> you had awesome questions in oh. case it's awesome talking with you and yeah. I can't wait to see you out at right in the Rockies, yeah. Gunnison, Colorado in July. Hope everyone out there listening joins us as well. We should have Brandon and, bring his, his interview van and just interview the writers. Oh, that would, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be great. So, okay, go then, on. Yes. Yeah, well, then Brandon, then then you can take that van with me, and we'll go find Abby's friends and family, and we'll interview them as well. That would be awesome. I'm too. down. I'm so down. Yeah. <laughs> He's got one of those old school long. What do you call it? It's a '87 Dodge. '87. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yep. Camper. <laughs> so, uh, for beers, there's two beers. The first beer that jumped to mind would be. Uh, a Utah-based beer, Polygamy Porter. Uh-huh. I th- I think Abby would get a, a kick out of the name and that it's coming out of one of his homes. But he always drank cheap beer, and uh, he used to determine how long a drive was by how many beers he could drink on that drive. And uh, so I would also probably bring out some sort of uh, swill, you know, an Olympia or Rainier yeah. or – a uh a yakima or uh cores and then i would uh you know try to figure out which he liked better because i don't know if he would uh he would look condescendingly on my my porter or if he'd love the new taste of it and then gosh what would i ask him about you know i might ask him about what we were talking about just how do you write about family or not write about family and a quick thing desert solitaire he was married and had two kids. I think both of his kids were alive then, living in arches with him when he wrote it. Yeah. And none of them are in the book. You never know. Yeah, I no. don't. Yeah. And it just might be, you know, how do you do that? And what is what is the ramification from that? And is it worth it? Mm-hmm. And it, what? why did he make that choice? I mean, he obviously he would, he'd have to change the title. 
you know, I mean, you, you desert was, family. Yeah, desert, <laughs> desert, desert, playing solitaire. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with, yeah. But yeah, yeah that's a solitaire. really interesting fact. Like, yeah. why did you? I mean, God, that would be a great conversation, wouldn't it? To sit down and just he, make this decision. And he made so many decisions that transformed. I'll I'll use that word rather than ruined, but transformed so many of his marriages. And you know, I think his writing and his life choices you know, affected the people around him and just, I can't do that. And you were talking about not being able to do that. So I just wonder how you can do that and if it's worth doing. Yeah. Because maybe we're wrong. Yeah, maybe. I'm just not going to take the chance. Like you said, you know, yeah. I mean, tell your students to be brave, but then, you know, well, I mean, it comes down to, I think it comes down to what do you got to lose? If you got a lot to lose, you're going to take a lot less risks with your writing. I mean, I think with, at least with nonfiction, you know, I take a yeah. lot of risks with my fiction, but that's not me, right? And so, you know, we can do it that well, way. Well, yeah, but and my, my guess is what Abby would say is it's not about what you have to lose; it's what might be lost if you don't do that. Right. And what he, what I think he'd be talking about is he and his family are one thing, and that's vitally important. But more important is the land itself, and and the rocks, and the, and the animals, and the plants. And he might argue that doing those things was more important for those more global reasons, and that. Uh, you and I are cowards because we think our family is the most important. Yeah. You know, I, I will not make a different choice and I don't think you will, but I would love to talk to Abby about that, which is something that kind of surprises me, Brandon. I thought maybe I'd think of something bigger, or bolder, or crazier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's, yeah. that's a good. Answer. Perfect. And I'll, 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 t- I'll bring the cores. <laughs> i'll bring the polygamy okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah yeah you know brandon beer sh- brandon beer shamed me last podcast i, I had some coors light in the fridge and he said you got anything else besides that and i said i had to run up to the fridge our, our main because i have a beer fridge in my office and then I had to run up to the main fridge and grab something fancy for him you know and a nice you went to something yeah, it was yeah. An ipa it was, something so, yeah i've learned my well, lesson well i got i got beer shamed last night by my na- neighbor because i only had uh uh, you know, micro brews in there. Yeah. And he was looking for uh, his Molson or Labatt's, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and he was disappointed to just see my my yeah. good beer. Right? Yeah. Well, goes it, both ways. It swings both ways, you guys. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Thank you so that, much, yeah. Sean. It was great to talk to you. We should do it again, especially when um when the when the, the new books come out. Let's just let's just plan on it. Uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and um uh, we'll, we'll 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 promote that one. We'll promote this one. Um, and we'll just talk again. Would, we could have talked for another two hours, but Brandon gave me the five minute thing. So, cause he's the editor. He's the, he's the one in charge. I just get to read books and ask questions and Brandon does all the work. So no, we could have talked for another two hours. Easy. Cause I have about four more questions that could have easily gone for another three. So, well, we are going to talk for four more hours or longer when we meet up in Gunnison and we're going to go out to the brewery and yeah. sit down and have some beers and, yeah. and talk some writing and some life. I'm excited. I'm going to write David like right now. Yeah, say, do hey, that. Tell him know. I say hi. I will, and I'm going to say, hey, hey, I'm in, right? So, Well, yeah. and you can even tell him that I said you're in. Okay, I will. I'll tell him Sean said I'm I, in. How do we I have no power, Sean? but oh, he'll get a laugh out of that. That's a good idea. Uh, Sean, what, uh, how, can we, how can our readers follow you, find your work? Uh, you can find me at seanprentice.com, so I'm easy to find on the internet. And I'm at Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I just realized that... Uh, I'd rather spend time with my daughter than uh, checking up on social media. So you can find me there, but the best way is to just go to my website. Okay. And you can always shoot me an email 
uh, there's a contact page and my email address is on there if you want to talk more. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And glad we finally got to talk again. Thanks, Sean. Brandon. Oh, Brandon and Case, thanks so much for taking the time. I love talking with yeah. you all.